The Mountain That Hid This two-channel film is an experiment coming out of my archive of videos shot over the past decade around my project on my family history and the anti-colonial war in what was then British Malaya, present-day Malaysia and Singapore. It is a meditative, abstract and unresolved short essay on some broad themes in the background. Anti-colonial resistance, forced migration and deportation, diaspora histories and transgenerational silences and inheritances. It contains within the strong idea that I've been grappling with of late, that there is a circularity in the way that time and things happen, that history unfolds in circles rather than in a straight line. The Malayan War itself and my grandfather's deportation by the British colonial government in 1949 and subsequent execution are but lurking presences in the film. Like with so many other spectres, colonialism has left us with. We can only begin to speak about these two or three generations on. And sometimes the speculative and fictive afford us the space of what scholar Sadia Hartman terms critical fabulation. To try to fill some of those gaps, both personal and geopolitical. The Family Stories We Tell. I'm Kathleen Ditzig, and this is a TBA 21 on stage podcast that responds to the artistic practice of Sim Chien and her ongoing research into the disappearance of her grandfather during the Malayan emergency, a guerrilla war between British and Commonwealth troops and the Malaysian National Liberation Army, the armed wing of the Malayan Communist Party. This podcast examines the exceptionalism of poetic license and by extension artistic license and personal stories and how they have been marshaled to address the silences and historical ruptures that have defined the Cold War post-colonial histories of Southeast Asia. My guests are two diasporic Malaysian writers, Tash Al and Preeta Samarasan, whose works have included family and generational narratives to speak to the long reach of the regions and Malaysia's racial and political histories. In considering Sim's practice, an investigation of an important episode in Southeast Asia's Cold War history and its ripples across her family history, this podcast considers the act of writing as it has been deployed across the region and in relation to Ao and Samarasan's work as a gesture of documentation and reclamation. Moreover, this podcast looks to the familial inheritance of stories as a resistance and contention of the enduring controversial legacies of colonialism and the political parameters that govern how we can speak to them. As history and race are actively deployed and continue to be marshaled by states to cloak neo-colonizing projects, the reclamation of history and the articulation of how personal histories and political projects of decolonization overlap is perhaps the most radical labor of writers and artists today. My first guest today, Tash Ao, was born in Taiwan to Malaysian parents and grew up in Kuala Lumpur. His first novel, The Harmony Silk Factory, won the 2005 Whitbread First Novel Award and the Commonwealth Writers Prize. His subsequent novels include Map of the Invisible World, published in 2009, set in Indonesia and Malaysia in the mid-1960s. 
He recently published his memoir, Strangers on a Pier, Portrait of a Family in 2021. I'd like to start by asking you about poetic license, which poetic license can be a hot blade that cuts through the restraints that power puts around what can be said. In a region where historian PJ Thumb can be interrogated by a parliamentary committee alongside big tech corporations on online falsehoods for his work on Operation Cold Store, a covert operation from 1963 that purported to suppress communist violence in the lead up to the formation of the Federation of Malaysia. Fiction has been a space to secret into the public consciousness uncomfortable truths and papered over regrets of a complicated post-colonial nation building process. As a contemporary writer, how has a historical view and historical research fit into your work? It informs every part of my my writing, every part of my my thinking of fiction. Um, if you, you mentioned P.J. Tam and and the sort of the questioning that, that he's had to sort of um, experience um, in Parliament, my opinion is, is that it's, it's something to do with um, our personal and collective and national approaches to. Um, our own narratives, how we tell our own narratives. And so my experience in Malaysia and Singapore is, um, and in Southeast Asia in general, is that people are quite willing and very open to talk about um, stories and confront things that are very uncomfortable from a personal and individual point of view. But the moment it's sort of, um, the moment they're required to sort of to, to confront the same stories in a public space, um, meaning that the narrative is transformed from being an individual narrative to being a collective and even a national one, then this becomes problematic. So it, it, uh, a simple thing is, is people will, will, will discuss you know, political problems, um, family problems, you know, societal problems very happily uh, you know, at the local hawker centre, the local coffee store, the kopitiam, over a cup of coffee or whatever. Um, but the moment an essay is written, about the same thing. The moment um, an op-ed is written about the same subject, even in a, in a very sort of straightforward, fact-based way, it suddenly becomes threatening. And so, for me, I, I, you know, as a fiction writer, uh, I think the telling of these stories brings them more into the individual sphere than the than the collective sphere. Obviously, a novel it does belong to the public space. It does belong to you know a, a wider um, way of thinking about um, problems. But because the act of holding a book feels very personal, it feels as if a person is um, a reader is forming uh, their own relationship with the book, and therefore with the writer, and therefore with the material. It somehow feels more liberating and more kind of, I guess, um, just a bit more intimate and therefore less threatening. So that is the way I've always seen the link between historical research um, and fiction and the link, therefore, between the writer and the reader, how the fiction becomes a shared space for sharing historical information. The fictionalized biography and its emphasis upon personal relations, love affairs, and family relations through the Cold War years in Southeast Asia has been a means to register, document, and speak to the unspeakable. 
When the Eurasian and then considered Malayan writer Han Su Ing first published A Many Splendored Thing in 1952, a fictionalized account of her love affair with Australian war correspondent Ian Morrison, Malcolm MacDonald, the then Commissioner General for Southeast Asia, wrote its forward, noting that she knew more than anyone that he commanded and that the book in capturing the historical shifts of the time would heal the rift between the East and the West. Her second novel, And the Rain Might Drink, an account that unfolds during the Malayan emergency, supposedly lent to her husband Leon Comber's dismissal from the British police force in 1956. Hans' work spoke to the the political complexities of being Chinese in a post-colonial context. How has the history of the regional Chinese identity fit into your work? Strangers on a Pier dwells on the British colonial history of Chinese migration and how it folds into your family history. I wonder how the discussions of this diasporic Chinese identity have shifted through your work. I mean, I think it's it's very difficult to um to 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 comment on on sort of regional sort of Chinese identity because I think Malaysia and Singapore, I think one can see certain commonalities, um, very strong commonalities. But I think um, the experience of uh, say Thai Chinese is different, and the experience of um, Indonesian Chinese is different. So you know, just because of of the, the the sort of the cultural and political and religious differences of the of these countries. Um, but in, in terms of sort of imagining um, the space as a as you know, an ethnic Chinese Malaysian, um, you know, to me as a writer, it's been it's been everything. You know, it's been it, it, one can't escape the fact that one is Chinese. You know, when I when I was growing up, when I was, particularly when I was very small, I really didn't want to have this. I didn't want to believe that I was Chinese. You know, it, I was I was sort of I belonged to that generation of all Malaysians who who grew up in 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 the first throes of, of nationalistic fervor, you know, we didn't want race to be um, to be so present in our lives, um, and so we grew up in this very weird position where race was was we desired race to be nothing, but in fact, race was absolutely everything, and and so you know, it's the unacknowledged uh, brutality of the system that that I think worked its way into even my work in in um in, in really sort of very very profound ways and uh, which i'm still figuring out now as a writer and i think this is the kind of the the danger when one doesn't articulate what it is about race i think you know you mentioned han Tzu yin and she you know she had a very you know she had a very um global sort of view of race she had a very kind of um, because of her, you know, her education, her viewpoint, um, and and the fact that you know she had a different viewpoint for, from the majority of, uh, of of Malaysian Chinese, she was able to imagine the state of Chineseness in a slightly different way. Um, whereas I think a lot of us are just we, we are we are products of our background, and you know because both sides of my family come from rural Chinese, we come from Chinese speaking backgrounds. And produces a, a very different view of being Chinese. It sort of it, it produces a view that is essentially trapped by its condition, that can't imagine binary states of of being um, Chinese and something else because they're they're victims. Those people are victims of the political situation and of the the social situation. And that is something I'm still trying to work out in, in my writing. Um, and so, I, and I think it, a lot of people like me 
take a long time to figure it out. It's a very, it's a very complex situation. I think that the, the history of being um, Chinese in Southeast Asia is, you know, is one that is, I think it takes a lot of unpacking. I did a panel actually in Singapore at the, at the arts house some years ago with the Malaysian writer who wrote an entire life and worked his entire life in, uh, in Taiwan, uh, Leong Ping, who, who was just a, a wonderful man, sadly sort of now um, deceased. And during the talk, um, he said that he said being Chinese in Southeast Asia was, was both the biggest blessing and also the biggest curse. And sort of a lot of people in the room were, were slightly perplexed. And he looked at me and he said, you know what I mean? And I didn't know what he meant. Um, it, it's it's something that it's not easily explained is, is what I'm saying. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm not being helpful <laughs> to your conversation, but it, 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 it is, I think, you know, a lot of people will, um, will know what it means, I think. And you don't need to be Malaysian in uh, Chinese in Malaysia to, to sort of, to understand this sort of split, this duality of thinking. I mean, you could be um, uh, Pakistani and British, for example. You could be any sort of combination. You'd be Algerian and French, and you will know what that means. You know, it's really just—it's it, very, very complex. Class figures prominently in *Strangers on a Pier*. You account a conversation with your father about the Cultural Revolution and contemporary Chinese consumption, and I quote. So for them, it's easier just to rejoice in the riches they have now, the handbags and apartments and travel and education and restaurants. The past is painful. The present is easy. Could you speak specifically about this entanglement between history, class, and racial identification? Yeah, you know, I mean, the, <laughs> that was a, you, we had that conversation about the Cultural Revolution because I was trying to sort of ask him about his own past. And um and he was, very, you know, as you know, I mean, you you know from 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 your own experience of Chinese families and of Chinese families around you, it's not something that people speak easily about. You know, they do not speak easily about the past, particularly when, as in the case of most people of, of my parents' generation, that past involves a lot of pain. It involves a lot of trauma. In one way, it involves a lot of sort of poverty. It involves a lot, a lot of you know, being a pawn in someone else's narrative. In whatever way that is, you know, either you're a colonial or you're you're part of a, a minority that's discriminated against um, politically or and socially, um, and so they don't talk about it. So you know, talking about a wider Chinese uh, experience might have been been easier. But it, what was really um, interesting was that the way it unlocked that conversation was was when we acknowledged that. Um, the reason why, say, mainland Chinese might not want to talk about the Cultural Revolution is to do with shame. And once we acknowledge that it was about shame, then we could then understand our own um, Chinese-Malaysian experience as one that is essentially driven by shame. So everything we do, everything we, we you know, all the stories we tell about ourselves, you know, all the narratives and all the choices we make for our children, for our society, is to do with erasing the sense of shame that we're carrying over as colonials, as people who, you know, who have been poor in the past. Um, we just don't really want that to be part of um, the, the narrative that we tell about ourselves today. Therefore, I think also racial divisions are something that are, that, that are uncomfortable. Racial divisions are shameful. You know, we don't want to acknowledge that this exists and that it has existed in very recent 
you know, um, periods in, in our history and actually still do today. Um, because that is something that that doesn't fit into the narrative of success. I mean, you know, we just want to sort of bury it under under other things. Um, and I think that part of my work is 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 about sort of acknowledging that that um, that this reticence exists, and also acknowledging that it's understandable to be you know ashamed of, of things you know people are sort of ashamed of being ashamed <laughs> but but you know I, I think i think there has to be some space for it you know and and actually acknowledging it is is the first step to sort of you know freeing yourself from it um and so much of it is also as you as you said about class so you know for example when i'm in when i'm in, in malaysia with malaysian friends who are, you know nowadays i live in a world where basically all my friends are writers and artists and, and, and people who work in politics and and you know at a certain level a country like malaysia functions incredibly well um across racial divides and so we are able to say things like um you know really malaysia is so fantastic you know we don't have any you know we get along so well you know there is on the on-street reality the everyday life is that people get along very well with each other but it's essentially because the people saying this belong to the same class we belong to the same educational class we belong to the same you know it's a professional class and so we share the same tastes and that is the way class works you know so of course you're going to share much closer things you're a middle class educated chinese person is going to share a lot more in common with a middle class educated malay person an indian person than they are with a working class chinese person with whom they don't even share the same language and you know i know this i know from personal experience because you know when i was growing up i wasn't part of that class i'm only part of that class now because because it, my education has transformed me it has it has given me a different life it has given me a different identity when i was younger um my cousins and i spoke hokkien or cantonese or, or mandarin you know and 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 now I live in a world which is basically entirely, in, entire, almost entirely English speaking, um, and therefore I've, you know, I, I really have um, lost a lot of the Chinese dialects, and a lot of it has been a de deliberate thing because I wanted to, you know, I have wanted to to be what um, what the you know, the French philosopher Didier Eribon says, you know, describes as as being a, a class refugee. I wanted to be be, be someone different. And that is, you know, in, in my personal way, I've become a metaphor for the whole of Southeast Asia. You know, the whole of Southeast Asia that you know, has it has social aspirations. It has class aspirations. We wanted to become rich. We wanted to become middle class. Um, except that in that transformation, certain things are lost, and one of the things that 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 uh, is lost is these histories of uh, that you know that you are researching that people like Chien are, are working on um, civil conflicts and, and and the people all the stories that have been that have been lost as a result um, and what happens to those lives what happens to those realities and that's why I wanted to write strangers on the pier that's why I wanted to write a memoir which is which which explored and ventured into a space that I couldn't venture into with my fiction that was more directive and more confrontational and more uncomfortable and that didn't allow people um, the chance to escape so much into you know a, a so-called fictive world I, I wanted to be more confrontational about it
My second guest today, Pritasa Marasan, is a Malaysian writer of fiction and nonfiction. Her first novel, Evening is the Whole Day, was published in 2008. Her second novel, Tale of the Dreamer's Son, was just released this month, November 2022. Samarasan was born and raised in Malaysia, but moved to the United States in high school. She currently lives in central France. Thanks for joining us today, Prita. To kick off our discussion, I'd like to ask you the same question I started by asking Tash. How do you view the parameters of poetic license in relation to writing fiction inspired by history? As a writer working in a contemporary moment, how does a historical view and historical research fit into your work? Could you also tell us specifically how um, your book, Evening is the Whole Day, 2008, referenced the May 13th race riots of 1969. How were the riots a device in the book, and, and what did it mean specifically to you when you were writing in 2007 during your MFA in Michigan? I think that my primary method of historical research actually has always been personal, you know, um, family conversations, inherited family histories, and just um, a mode of observation when I'm in Malaysia or around Malaysians that I don't really turn off. Um, and I think that compared to that, the amount of actual, you know, what would count as historical research in an academic context, like actually going to archives and and uh, looking at documents, I, I would say the percentage is relatively low. I do go back to the documents and the actual history when I need to confirm something, because of course, when you write fiction, you know, every fiction writer knows there's um there's a distinction in the work in in, in between when you present something as a character's point of view versus when the narrative seems to present it as fact. And so I do have to be careful when the narrative is presenting something as fact that I'm getting the facts right. So, but that always comes after um, the, what I think of as my, you know, the primary process of getting the story across. Like it's always people's stories and, and stories of course being plural, there's never a single story. So getting all of these stories across and then at some point stepping back and saying, okay, now let's make sure that um, whatever is being presented as underlying fact is not totally off the mark. So then, then you know, I'll, I'll go back. But, but it's interesting, your question about poetic license, because it's almost in my practice, in my mind somewhere, it's almost flipped that I don't think of the fact first and then me taking license with it. But the license almost comes first. It's, it's, it's entering into it in a poetic spirit and then uh, kind of stepping back and, and making sure that I haven't taken too many liberties or any liberties at all with, with what's being presented as fact. You know, I have another book that's coming out very shortly in, in November, and uh, it also deals with the riots, but in a different, I, I think anyway, a, a slightly different, it gives it gives them a different place. So I'll go back to your question. When I first started writing the book, which actually, the first book, Evening is the Whole Day, um, which I began uh, long before it came out, you know, I first started thinking about that book and sort of writing a very early draft of it in 1999. And it's almost, it feels, and it is, I think, a very different era. It just doesn't, doesn't just feel like a different era. It's a very different era from the one we're living in now. And I, I wasn't at the time thinking of the riots as a device necessarily, but I knew that if I wanted to tell any kind of story about where Malaysia is today and what Malaysia is today, that I had to fit in that historical event because I really see it as the, um, 
foundation of everything that Malaysia has become today. And that's, you know, not just, I mean, of course, in very obvious ways, like our economic policies, our education policies, our language policies, all of these can be dated back to, can, you know, be traced back to 1970. But it's not just that. I think also at that time, thinking about where I was in 1999, who I was in 1999, um, who my family was, it, it, it seemed very present in the ways that we talked about each other in the ways that we saw ourselves, it, it you know, it felt maybe it, it didn't feel quite as long ago as it does now. And that I was also just coming out uh, from under my parents' wing, if you will, like I was still a young adult in the process of defining myself. And my parents had always talked about those riots as so defining, you know, that, that they, they really saw a before and an after, that before they had a certain vision of what Malaysia could be, and after they gradually had to let go of that vision. I don't think there was a moment where they thought, okay, that's it, this is after, and we can't have that Malaysia anymore, but that it was this gradual process of realizing that, oh, actually, we're not going to be able to get back that dream that we had. So I think that's where I was in 1999, when I was first writing the book. And certainly, you know, as I rewrote drafts and got to then having, you know, working on it in, in the MFA program, which was also interesting, because I was working on what I thought of as a very Malaysian story in a non-Malaysian context, surrounded by non-Malaysian peers and colleagues who are reading the work and giving me feedback and sort of then myself coming to see that historical event through outside eyes, as well as through my own eyes through the western gaze and my own gaze and always feeling those two things in conflict and in conversation with each other um but never i don't think I, I thought well this this is the device through which i need to tell this story but it felt like this is something i have to get through i have to get past i have to find a way to show how that event underlies everything in Malaysia, how it underlies the story of this family, how it underlies the stories of so many families. Um, and I can't get around it. You can't get around it. You have to go through it. And that's how it felt with the riots. Like, okay, what do I do? I have this thing and it has to go in this book. And I think it came out of that, you know, like the framing of it as a device, like, oh, if it's in there, then it's always in there. It's always a part of the narrative. And it's from that, that it kind of turned into this allegory in that chapter. I think that families handing down stories is where we get our most authentic, our, our truest histories. You know, I'm not going to uh, in this comes full circle to where I was at the beginning of this, this uh, recording, um, you know, I'm going to trust family histories first. Those are always going to be where I go first and then not going to go to the documents or the archives until later, because I see that as, you know, kind of almost this, this um, secondary auxiliary thing, uh, the, the thing that I just need to tie the loose ends. Um, and, and yeah, families, handing down history. To me, that's our history. That's Those are our histories, not singular, but, but plural. Do you consider the way you work with history as anti-colonial? In the era that we're currently living in, it's so important to define what we mean by anti-colonialism, in part because the concept of decolonization, I think, has been co-opted by some people and that, that now, you know, it's it gets used in ways that sometimes I'm not very comfortable with as well. And I think that the whole question of what is colonizing, what is anti-colonial, what is decolonial, 
all of these conversations, um, we need to really, rather than I think inheriting the language and the conversations from the West, and in particular from the United States, I think we need to take the conversation as it comes to us and then redefine it for ourselves. Because obviously, I mean, on the most obvious level, we can't, you know, uh, white versus non-white, white being colonial and non-white being anti-colonial doesn't work for us in the Southeast Asian context, you know. Um, I mean, it does. If we go back in history, of course, we, we, you know, went through British colonialism and had to find ways to then define ourselves and our nations after that. So that's that's the first post-colonial moment that, that we all look back to. And it's ongoing. It's never going to be completely done because European colonialism is always going to be a presence in any society that went through it. But I think if we stop there and say, okay, everything white is colonial, everything non-white is anti-colonial, then we're doing ourselves a great, great disservice because that's not the reality. That's not the current reality anymore. And, you know, I think that um, looking at how but the immediate post-colonial power dynamic um, in, in, in so many ways ended up just replacing one colonialism with another. I think we really need to uh, have these conversations as well, you know, how in, in taking just the history of Malaya and later Malaysia, how um, the, the British negotiated with AMNO, sort of handed the country to AMNO, and how that continues to play out in our modern, you know, in, in what's happening today. I, I think AMNO, of course, would very love to present themselves as the anti-colonial party, but that is not what happened. That's not what's happening. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just to say that, yes, I do think of myself as anti-colonial, but I think that I see so many different anti-colonialisms and that I try to somehow remind people of all the other ones, not just the most obvious one, you know, not just, I mean, and, and I'm not saying that it's not important. I'm saying that the original anti-colonialism is important, you know, taking down the statues of Rhodes. And I was very much in favor of removing statues that do nothing but kind of remind people of a power dynamic that didn't, that didn't help us, that didn't serve us, that didn't, uh, you know, and, and when it comes to, the rethinking curricula, you know, re and making opening up space for more people's stories, not just, you know, stories coming from the West, all of this, I think I, I can get behind with no hesitation. But uh, I see my job increasingly um, as someone having to remind people that um, it's not just this one very obvious layer of colonialism, but that in Asia, we have to think about as well how brown people can can have these power dynamics you know we can be shitty to each other we don't we sometimes don't need white people to do that work for us because we're doing it in in asia and and it gets talked about much less i think if i may use an example i think that it's you know one thing that we see happening in malaysia is this um false claim or false attempt to present as anti-colonial uh, gestures that are actually consolidating uh, Malay ethno-nationalist power, right? And, and as uh, Malaysians, we can look at a certain gesture, like say, you know, you're taking away the white name of something, but then you're replacing it with a Malay Muslim name. Uh, as Malaysians, we have the insider knowledge to, to, to know how uh, ethnic minorities in Malaysia would experience such a gesture that yes, 
on the one hand, it's anti-colonial, but on the other hand, it's also consolidating your power, your, your place in the existing power dynamic, right? So we can see that. And, and, and we can see the same kind of thing happening in India with Hindu ethno-nationalism, you know, like calling something decolonial when really you are cementing Hindu ethno-nationalist power. Um, and so we, we can we can see this when we have the insider perspective. Like I, I'm familiar enough with Indian culture to notice when it's happening in India. I'm familiar enough with Malaysian culture to notice when it's happening in Malaysia. Even though I'm Southeast Asian, if I were to look beyond to say the Philippines or Indonesia, there may be instances where this same kind of thing is happening, but I don't recognize it. I don't see it. And I might just celebrate it as a victory for decolonization when in fact it's um, not, it's not, it's not such an unqualified victory or not a victory at all if we look from the perspectives of minorities. So I think those, that, that for me is the common um, battle that we all need to fight. And that the first step is educating each other and really showing each other, you know, explaining to some extent and just revealing, you know, what is the full story behind each of these things that, that happens? What is our perspective as insiders? And this is the result of colonialism that somehow our countries, even though we share a region, in, you know, this is less true of Malaysia and Singapore because we share so much history, but going beyond, if we, if we look, you know, between Malaysia, Malaysians and Filipinos or Malaysians and Indonesians or Malaysians and, and Thai people, sometimes, um, you know, our un understandings of each other are uh, so mediated by the West. Um, we, we read about each other in Western newspapers sometimes because we don't otherwise share language. Once again, not the case between Malaysia and Indonesia either, but say Malaysia and the Philippines or Malaysia and Thailand, we're reading about each other in English language media or in our own local media. It's, it's, it's always mediated, I think. And this is where I think our, our work as artists, as anti-colonial artists really comes in because we can tell those stories in ways that are less mediated, in ways that are less colored by colonialism, in ways that are more honest, I think. Um, and we can, in this way, like, you know, educate each other and, and show each other um, those moments when the truth of what something that's happening, the truth of something that appears anti-colonial is so much more complex and, and um, so much more nuanced. Thank you, Tash and Prita, for sharing with us your thoughts on the responsibilities of mobilizing poetic license towards speaking to the enduring legacies of colonialism and the redress that family histories and inheritances may promise. The reading of stories in this respect, as Tash so eloquently put, is a personal relationship formed with history, where the intimacy of a story shared between writer and reader is a sharing of historical information that is at once public yet private personal and therefore unthreatening and liberated from the machinations of those in power. Tash and Preeta's work and the thoughts they have shared today on writing about the Cold War nation-building informed histories of Southeast Asia illustrate how holding space for an anti-colonial perspective is a complex and nuanced task that supersedes binaries of East and West. And as Preeta has alluded to in her unraveling of what being anti-colonial actually means, requires the reflexivity of one's position and a sensitivity to how one speaks to race and class. 
Moreover, it requires an awareness that, that these entanglements between race and class shift and are instrumentalized as history and truth by different political actors. Yet, as these writers suggest, it is perhaps the stories that we inherit from our families and how we persist in telling them across generations, secreting them into the future in the form of fiction that resists history from being recolonized. TBA 21 on stage's editor-in-chief is Francesca Thyssen-Bornemitze. The content curator is Soledad Gutierrez. The project manager is Nina Speranda. The curatorial assistant is John Aranguren. The theme music is by Carl Michael von Hauswolf. And I am Madeline Robinson. Thank you for listening. Thank <laughs> you.